Hello, Rachel. How are you? I've got a throat and ear infection, Philip. I'm so happy that you asked. I know. You've been, you have been suffering this week. I'm sorry, but you're looking after yourself, hopefully. Yeah. I've just got Good. one earbud in, so if I sound like I'm only half listening, that's why. <laughs> How's your week been, Philip? What have you been up to? My throat's been fine. So <laughs> work is starting to come back in. Gigs are starting to enter into the diary. However lightly penciled I'm putting them in, it's starting to feel like maybe we can be comedians again. So that's nice. Yeah. A light pencil is something I think that people outside the industry don't understand. I imagine penciling is quite a confusing concept, let alone the difference between a light pencil, a heavy pencil. Yes, and especially given that my calendar is on my phone, there are no pencils involved anyway. <laughs> it's just technology. It's like the old joke about trying to delete things on their computer by using Tipex. And now we need to explain Tipex to the kids. Oh my goodness. <laughs> So what have you been up to this week? I went for a lovely long walk with our friend, comedian Pauline Eyre. Of course, I'd brought with refreshments. Classic Rieger. <laughs> and then she WhatsApped me the conversation she had afterwards with her husband that went like this. Would you like to share my blueberry muffin? Husband, how comes you've got that? Pauline, Rachel gave it to me. Husband, how come? Pauline, she's Jewish. I thought that's lovely. That's now my reputation spreading far and wide, uh, even to our friends' husbands. And I think it's really lovely that finally there's a positive reason for somebody saying she's Jewish. Let's talk about today's show. We've got two very exciting guests, haven't we? We have indeed. We've got Canadian actor Kerry Shale, who, if you check out his IMDb, has been in pretty much everything. Everything, including a lot of voices on Thomas the Tank Engine. Absolutely. I've got very little control over my IMDb profile, but there are definitely things in there that seem like I shouldn't be proud of them. Like I play (laughs) characters called Man and Hooded Man and Hotel Bellman and things like that. I thought when you said Hotel Bellman, that's just like a Jewish girl whose mum's given her like a fancy schmancy name. What, like Paris Hilton Greenberg? <laughs> <laughs> My favourite, though, is the entry for a TV series called Café American that in 1993 I played a health inspector. And I'm fascinated by this being on my IMDb because I was never in that show. <laughs> We've got the brilliant Rachel Mars, who is a fantastic performance artist, but also she is the queen of Pickle Watch on YouTube, which has been my obsession over the last year to the extent I've even made my own pickles. Okay, ready? On with the show. This episode of Jew Talking to Me was recorded under lockdown conditions. Hello, I'm Rachel Krieger. And I'm Philip Simon. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Orthodox, so nine months to the day after our wedding, our first son was born. And I'm Reform, so our first son was born a year and a half before our wedding. This is the chat show that's the audio equivalent of Chala. It's made with love, features lots of twists and is best consumed late at night with a jug of cold gravy. In each episode, we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they religiously fickle or Heimische pickle? Welcome to Jew Talking to Me. Let's introduce our guests. First up is performer, writer and pickle aficionado, Rachel Mars. Good evening. 
Good evening. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. You know, it's nice to see you. Likewise. So, Rachel, regular listeners to our podcast know that we always like to find out how our guests self-define as Jews. And you already know I'm Orthodox and Philip's Reform. But what kind of a Jew are you? On paper, not a very good one. I was (laughs) raised in an Orthodox synagogue in Ealing, where my parents still go. And then when I kind of at all became aware of gender disparity, (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, this is not for me. And so ever since... In terms of kind of denomination, I'm Roman. I'm a roaming Jew because I haven't like got myself a synagogue. I'm polyamorous. Sometimes I go and visit other synagogues on a Friday, you know, just to shake it up. So deeply cultural, very humorous and food based. But when it comes to kind of slapping a label on me, mm, probably in my heart, reform. Although I love the ritual of the Orthodox. I like that you said you were brought up in an Orthodox synagogue. I'm just imagining your parents just putting you to sleep in the synagogue, (laughs) getting up, taking you home just for meals, but everything else is done in the synagogue. In the synagogue, but I wouldn't be allowed on the bimba, would I? No. (laughs) No, no. If nobody was there, like if it was two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, they they get you dust. Exactly. (laughs) But I had like recently, I was like, I'm going to make a stand because I always go back to uh, the Orthodox synagogue for High Holy Days. And I was going to be like, I have been dragging up, which is how I feel in a dress for like 30 years for Yom Kippur Rosh Hashanah I'm gonna stop dragging up I'm gonna go in my like suit with my trowel my trowel suit I mean everyone there's known me since I was five they know what kind of human I am but I was gearing myself up for like I don't know a bit of reaction perhaps <laughs> and I said to my mom I'm gonna wear my suit and she was like fine and I went there no one cared <laughs> at all and I was just like oh it's like a modern orthodox synagogue where I would say 50% of the people are self-described agnostic slash atheist so they don't care if I wear a suit but I'd like built it up in my head as this big deal I was hoping I was hoping for some kind of ripples and no one cared we're hoping for like a protest like get out of my shit out Sounds like a very disappointing Yom Kippur. It was terrible because surely Yom Kippur is all about yourself and the ripples you make. (laughs) Something to repent for next year. Yeah, in it. I have lots of kind of queer Jewish friends and I think they're my sort of, they're like my itinerant synagogue in a way. That's lovely. That's like, you know, your synagogue of choice. Yeah, exactly. It's my chosen synagogue. It's not a building at all. It's a bunch of people and the connections between them. It's the friends you made along the way. (laughs) So we were going to ask what's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently. I don't know if it was wearing a suit to shawl. Is it something that continued post Yom Kippur? I was a one-off, to be honest. Then the pandemic came. We haven't been to shawl since, so that was the end of that, really. The most Jewish thing that happened to me recently... I mean, it, look, it makes me laugh. It's not appropriate, but there we are. I am doing some work with a museum, which is opening a new Holocaust exhibition. That's the context for this story. And it was on Zoom and I was invited to do kind of pre-opening, have a look. We're going to do a guided tour of the museum on Zoom with like digi representations of all the rooms. And um, I think I was actually like the only Jewish person on this virtual tour. And it was my friend's birthday that night and he's vegan. And I'd gone to buy him four vegan cakes for his birthday and they were with me. And at like hour two and a half of this tour, <laughs> when we were entering like persecution room, I think we were, we were going into like, I don't know, Sobibor or something. I was losing my mind knowing that we had like another hour and a half of this tour to go. I could just see the cakes. 
I was just like, I'm so hungry. I'm so traumatized. <laughs> and so I just put, took my video off, put myself on mute and then ate his birthday cakes. <laughs> it's the only way I could survive it. That feels Jewish to me, like an appropriate reaction <laughs> to that level of trauma is just to eat someone else's cakes. Did he know there were four cakes waiting for him? No, he knew about the two I gave him. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Our next guest is Canadian actor and podcast host, Kerry Shale. Hello. Hi. Okay, welcome. Thank you. So, Kerry, let's hear from you. What kind of a Jew are you? Well, I guess I'm an atheist agnostic Jew of the type that uh, Rachel described, uh, a cultural Jew. I was also raised in an Orthodox uh, synagogue, but they did let me go home. <laughs> and uh, I had an Orthodox uh, bar mitzvah. Basically, the kind of Jew I am is I'm the kid in, uh, do you know, uh, the Cohen Brothers, A Serious Man, the movie? Yeah. The kid who has the bar mitzvah. That's I'm that kid. Actually, I, I'm not literally, no. I mean, I identified with it because that's from uh, Minnesota. They're from Minnesota. I'm from Manitoba, which is above Minnesota. So Minnesota, but even colder and crazier and nicer. So that's where I'm from. And that's where I had my Orthodox bar mitzvah. But I was like that kid in that I was a very self-entitled suburban kid complaining about unimportant problems. The difference was that in the Jewish household that I was brought up in, I mean, my, my mom was from a shtetl in Poland and, and my dad was born in Winnipeg, where, where I was born, although his family was from Russia, but he saw himself as, you know, very fiercely Canadian and Jewish in, the, in a much more modern sort of way. But what he did for a living sort of made it unusual in that he sold plastic vomit and uh, plastic dog poo. He basically was a jokester. My dad was a jokester. And he wasn't a stand-up, but he he sold uh, novelties, as they were called, to local gas stations. Like when you're driving across the prairies or any place in the States, they would have novelties. And they were often a very sexual in uh, nature as well. So basically, when I tell people that my dad sold toys and novelties, they go, what a fabulous childhood. But the thing is, my dad was a big kid. So he would, like, you'd hear the car pull in the driveway. And then he'd come in just before he got to the kitchen. you hear, <laughs> and then we didn't know it was plastic vomit. There'd be vomit. And he'd say, oh, I had a bad had a hot dog on the way in. Oh. And <laughs> we got to see things that, you know, children don't normally get to see, like their parents really behaving as children. So that impacted me greatly. I don't know, you know, what that's got to do with being Jewish, but I think it does because those things would happen all the way through, you know, the high holidays, everything, you know. And, and my dad thought I was really serious. In fact, because my dad was always making jokes, I guess I, w I, I was funny outside the house, but inside the house, I was kind of embarrassed, really. I wanted a father who could sort of mentor me and give me serious advice. And there would be whoopee cushions. I realized why that is an absolutely Jewish profession is because no matter what highway you were on inside the service station, they'll be selling those jokes. And no Jewish person can drive past a petrol station <laughs> on, a, on a motorway. Like it's impossible. You have to get out you have to buy food you have to yeah. buy drinks so naturally you're going to want to buy some plastic dog poo that was my childhood my jewish childhood to bring us a bit more up to date what's the most jewish thing that's happened to you lately well i discovered pretend it's a city on netflix have you seen it so good it's <gasps> fabulous and and i didn't want to watch it because i got the idea that it was going to be about some crazy new york city Jew, Fran Leibowitz, complaining about everything. And I thought, eh, you know, you get enough of that at home or, you know, but it's uh, a friend of mine really recommended it highly. I sat down and watched it and it's sublime. It's basically her complaining about everything, but she's really super smart. 
super funny. It relaxes me. It's like being in New York. Like I love New York. I am not remotely from there. I'm from Canada and I live in London, but I go to New York as often as I can. And uh, I just love the atmosphere there. It's my kind of crazy. So Fran Lebowitz, pretend it's a city. She hates modern life. She doesn't have a mobile phone, a computer she doesn't have because she likes to watch and be present. And so she's watching everybody in New York City all the time, but nobody anymore watches anything except their mobile phones. So some guy bumps into her in a hotel lobby, some tourist, she loathes tourists. And she says, stop right there. Okay, I'm gonna give you some advice. Pretend it's a city. Pretend there's other people in the actual world. Oh, and Martin Scorsese directs it. Martin Scorsese oh, wow. interviews her and directs it. It's just great. It, and it's very Jewish. I think it's amazing. There's a whole episode about money and how bad she is. Yes. Money. And you get this kind of sense halfway through that she's bought an apartment she can't afford. She's rung Marty, she calls him. Yeah. And she's like, Marty, I'm in deep financial trouble. And he's gone, let me talk to Netflix. And this is this that's gorgeous probably what series, happened. probably, right? Gorgeous series that's come out of it, and good for her. Absolutely. She's wonderful. And uh, Martin Scorsese did do a documentary about her 10 years ago. This is just them getting back together again. Our landlord has just given us notice, so is all I need to do to call up Netflix? And then I'm call sorted. up Martin Scorsese. Call up Marty. Marty don't, don't call up Netflix. Get Marty. No, call up Marty. Marty. Okay, I'm texting now. These are tough times, and we always like to check in with our guests and ask, what's the matter, Bubbler? Kerry, what is going on with you at the moment? Well, I know this is supposed to be about stuff that really bugs you, and I, I'd like to complain about something big, but mine is very sort of insular and very self-serving because I'll also because I'm an actor and that's the way I am. So uh, self-taping, I don't know if you guys know about self-taping in oh, the yeah. show business. Oh, oh, the, the comics oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know. Oh, Philip's an actor as well as a comic. Okay, so oh, right. a well, okay so closely oh. guarded secret, but yes, oh. I'm an actor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I will explain it to our non-actor friends out there. I remember the, when the first self-tape came in, it was a day like today, which was a very beautiful, sunny day. My agent called me up on a Saturday, which is unusual, and said, Kerry, can you do a self-tape? And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, you've got a phone, right? Yeah, well, just film yourself on the phone doing, we'll, we'll send you a script. I thought it was ridiculous. So I didn't take it seriously at all. I thought, what, without anybody else there, like reading in with me? And it was terrible. The lighting was terrible. The sound was terrible. It was actually a really good part. As the years went on, then I had to do more and more of these. I realized you do need to get some to read in with you. So I asked my wife, who is not an actress, after three or four of those, it was sort of like, we do value the marriage. And so <laughs> we are not going to do this again. <laughs> well, I told her, I said, just tell me I'm wonderful after each take. Just say that, oh God, that was wonderful. And then we'll go again. Don't tell me I was crappy because <laughs> that's not going to make me better. So now, of course, it's so super secretive. Like there's no information. You get a thing that says untitled project, no script except for the one little scene that you're in, which is maybe a made up scene, which isn't even in it. The worst thing is no schmoozing because mm. the thing is I'm a pretty good actor, but I'm a really good schmoozer. And there were times when I would go in there and just charm the pants off them. Whatever they needed, I would give them. And then I might give it crappy reading because I, I tend to make outrageous big choices. And they would always say, yeah, good. Let's try the exact opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> and and I would do the exact opposite, and sometimes I would get the part. And also, they can see everybody in the world. Everybody 
in the world can audition now for this part. And sometimes you are auditioning for some part that you don't have a hope in hell of getting. And that, that would always happen. That's part of show business. But anyway, you would do dozens of these, dozens. Luckily, I do have, I have an actor friend who says, oh, Carrie, you're wonderful. And that gets me to the next one. But it was, it was hell, 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 hell. And then actually, I finally snagged a big part recently. I'm From good. a self-tape. From a self-tape, yes. Oh, so I'm good, to, I'm good for like the next year. Right now, I'm at the top of my game. I just feel very confident. And then it'll go and it'll go and everything will turn. Can you tell us what it is, Kerry? I don't see why not because it's been announced that they're doing it. I'm doing The Sandman. I'm such a Sandman fan. Are you? I'm playing one. Do you know in the in the serial killer convention? I probably can't tell you anymore or they will come and serially kill me. <laughs> For me, a big Netflix series. It's really cool. I did The Sandman Audible. So I played Abel and a few other assorted devils and things. And so I asked Neil because I ask everybody I meet who's famous, you know, if they like Bob Dylan, because our podcast is about Bob Dylan. And Neil Gaiman said, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a big Dylan fan. Uh, in fact, I live in his uh, old managers. I uh, I own the house that Albert Grossman had up in Woodstock, where Bob Dylan wrote Mr. Tambourine Man. I said, oh, would you like to come on our podcast? It's about Bob Dylan. And he said, yes. That was a very, very nice thing for him to do. Your story has brought back a number of traumatic memories because occasionally I've helped Philip when he's had to do self-taping. And what happens in that dynamic is that he speaks to me like you're being very patient with a child who's not understanding what they have to do. I'm the other person. I'm the person reading in. But I'm your your wife. I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. In this this. It is a very testing uh, relationship thing, isn't it? But also the type of self-tapes I do generally are commercials. And the people looking at commercials to give you the job isn't always the people with the talent necessarily. It's the client. For them, it's just a day out of the office to watch videos. And they haven't got a clue about acting. So they don't know to look at the other person doing the reading and going, well, they're not part of it. So don't judge anything based on them. (laughs) This isn't going to get an Oscar. Do we get Oscars for commercials? I don't know, but it's not going to happen. So it's really problematic. I've done a few recently and I want to ask you about this Kerry because one I did literally just before lockdown started last year I was due to actually film a commercial that I had got from a self-tape mm. where I'd had to play a jogger and you can't tell by listening to the podcast but a jogger I am not um, <laughs> but what I had to do I had to set up the camera on my garden fence that overlooks a park area and I had to jog backwards and forwards in front of this camera sometimes being out of breath Maybe pausing by a bench and things like that. And, and I'm just wondering, what's the weirdest thing you've had to do for yourself? Well, the thing is, I've done the gamut, the gamut of auditions. And the, the most degrading ones have been commercials. Because you have to do stuff like that. And, yeah. and so a, a commercial self-tape would be that times X, the X yeah. factor of degrading auditions. Here's my most degrading audition. This was not a commercial audition. It was the pilot for a big American series. It was set in the American Embassy in London. There's a big part in this first episode. The character was called Naked Guy. (laughs) You know, okay, that's a hint that there may be some degradation involved. They wouldn't give him a passport. So he was sitting in the middle of the foyer of the American embassy, naked, with his legs crossed, but naked. It was a pretty good part. But when I went to the audition, it was in this huge room. I was just told somebody was going to read with me. And so I opened the door and I walked with confidence because you've got to enter with confidence. And it was gigantic. This room was like a hundred feet to the little table where all these people were sitting. And they were all Americans who had come over because it was, you know, for NBC or something. 
I don't know if you've ever auditioned. I audition all the time, really, for American stuff, but not usually for American series. And they've got no sense of humor. I mean, less than no sense of humor. And so as I was walking and crossing, they were looking at me as if I was naked. It's naked guy. Do we want to see this guy naked? And by the time I got to the chair, they had made up their mind. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I'm very confident and easy to work with. And let's do the work of the audition. I knew I'd lost the job just from the walk. And then I did do the audition and they, they didn't speak to me. You know, it's just like that. We don't want to see you naked. We do not want to see you naked. Then they said, do you have any questions? And I don't usually ask questions because you're not supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to be confident and easy to work with. But I thought something is terribly wrong here. And nobody's asked me anything. And so I said, um, naked guy, is he in the series? And they said, no, he dies. <laughs> <laughs> What does he and die of? They didn't say. Probably exposure. There's every yeah. chance they decided that and you'll walk across the room. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely true. Now, I'm, I'm very aware we've just had a lot of talk about Kerry having to audition as a naked guy. And I'm very nervous to think that, Rachel, your answer to this question might have changed slightly. But what's the matter, Bubbler? The thing that's the matter with me is personal, but also systemic. It's not funny. Sorry, guys. My partner's job has been moved to a small town. Let's leave it there. I can't say too much. But the thing it made me realise is big corporations run by straight white men don't think about others when they're making decisions about where you might want to work. Because I was like, I'm a Jew and I'm gay. You're a gay. Strangely, we're both gay. Works well because we're together. <laughs> and I choose London because that's where there's enough of me. I can find the people of me I like to hang out with. I don't want to just have one gay Jew that can be my friend. I want to have a lot. I want to have what I wouldn't be seen dead in, right? So mm -hmm. this is my thing that's been, I was suddenly just like, oh yeah, like place and location. When you're, you know, other, you make a decision about where you live so that you can have community. And when like a giant entity is trying to make a decision about where you live, it ignores. And I'm like a white lady. So if I was, you know, if I'm a person of color, that also comes into it. So I've just been thinking a lot about being uprooted and how what you need as someone who doesn't look like everybody else or doesn't feel like everyone else is ignored by people that look and feel like everyone else. The end of my run. Oh, no, just the beginning. Um, can you tell us the name of the town or a frame no. of reference to the... Can you give us a frame of reference to the difference between London and, say, the size of that town? It has got about 300,000 people in it. I don't know and if that's a lot or a small amount. I'm not well, good with maths. London's got 9 million. Okay, so it's smaller than London. <laughs> yeah, considerably. I grew um, up yeah. in, a, in a city of 500 million. Wow. It, it was, Were you the only one of you? Oh, no. It had a big Jewish community because the weather was so terrible. The wind came down from the, the steppes of Russia, as did a lot of the people. <laughs> right. I mean, it had a big Ukrainian population and a big Jewish population. And the Ukrainians, of course, beat up the Jews, um, at least in our high school. But, you know, that was sort of like, that's history. That's a bit of Europe in the middle of North America. There was a lot of good cultural stuff happening there. But the weather was just awful. Don't go, Rachel. I'm not going to. Because of the Ukrainians more than anything else. <laughs> I don't mean don't go to Winnipeg. I mean, don't go to the year 300,000. Yeah, I, I have family from Winnipeg. They've never said anything about the Ukrainians. Have they not? No. Well, they're very, they're, they're hiding their tears. Rachel, is, is there an outcome now? Are you moving? No, I am the least flexible person anyone could be in a relationship with when it comes to stuff like that. I'm just like, I'm going nowhere. End of discussion. <laughs>
And also, like, I feel similarly about cities, as you described, Kerry, with, like, Fran Leibowitz in New York. That is where I feel great. Yeah, no, I'm not. It's There's too much sense of, like, self and identity for me tied up with cities and looking at people and multi, multiple different kinds of people. And I need nine million of them to look at. So, no. Also, I don't think I think I'm horrible with change. So, no again. We'll see how that goes. been very clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll put you down as undecided. As a Jewish mother, whenever I see anybody, my first thought is, have you eaten yet? But have you got any interesting memories that connect to Jewish food? Rachel Mars, what about you? I thought I would talk about gherkins, obviously, because the thing that I've done in lockdown is start reviewing gherkins on YouTube. Um, of course. Pick, pickle watch. But actually, then I remembered that my grandparents moved from moved that gives them an element of choice no no they fled (laughs) (laughs) germany and ended up in this like tiny nottinghamshire town where yeah my grandfather ended up being a farmer and blah 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 anyway i have a memory of being in this tiny nottinghamshire village house with them and whenever we went we'd eat tongue right which is his favorite thing and i was like five i was six i was seven i was eight and i was like tongue is delicious love this whatever this tongue is is great and then i remember being about 12 and suddenly hearing the word again you know when you suddenly just i was like tongue i remember asking my mom going what is tongue (laughs) and her going yeah it's a tongue no 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 no. let's go let's go back what is tongue she's like it's a tongue i was like of what it's like of a cow it's a cow's tongue and i just the horror the utter horror of another animal's tongue on my tongue and i don't know how i'd managed to like separate the meanings because for years because it was tasty and then you're like of course because it has the furry top bit and like Oh, the horror. The horror. With caper sauce, which was really nice. But yeah, I'd forgotten all about that and then remembered it this week. My grandma was German and tongue was a staple for like all the religious holidays. And I I remember around the similar age of saying, do you mean a tongue exactly like that and then whenever i saw it on the plate and obviously on the you know it's not served whole you just know and i'd look at it and i would imagine a cow licking its lips i don't even know if cows have licks but that's what i would picture when i saw it and i remember saying to my sister it's like you're snogging a cow when you eat it it's not right i remember someone saying to me like do you realize that you're tasting your own tongue all the time and that was enough to freak me out. Oh, but, and that has just blown my mind right now. But yeah, it was traumatic. Traumatic tongue experience, number one. Beef tongue. Oi, what could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind you that back episodes of the podcast are available on all the usual platforms, as well as our own website, jewtalkingtome.com. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a lovely review. It's what your mother would want. And after our shock at finding out that tongue means a tongue we'd love to hear whether you've had any unexpected food revelations of your own tell us all about it on social media using the hashtag food surprise at jew talking without the g and now back to the show kerry are you a fan of tongue i have never knowingly eaten tongue I, I think I figured out the correlation between the two of them quite early on so is there another jewish food or a memory around a jewish meal that you'd like to share 
Well, yeah. When I went to Winnipeg with a girlfriend like 25 years ago, previous to my lovely wife, uh, she was the new girlfriend and she was half Jewish. Her father was German Jew and uh, fled to the UK. So this excited my parents and my family. What they did is they set up a, a surprise sort of um, afternoon canapé thing to introduce my girlfriend and hopefully, you know, get her properly into the family. But we didn't know any of this when we arrived in Winnipeg. We were just coming for a visit. And they said, oh, there's this thing. There's this, we got this thing. And they had completely messed it up in that they'd set it, I think it was for like two o'clock and everybody expected to have lunch, but they'd only arranged for these sort of canapes. We were there. It was at some hotel and everybody swanned in. We hadn't brought anything dressy. I guess I was about 30 and my parents were like in their late 50s. People were still sort of looking, you know, sharp and we were not looking sharp. And the first thing that happened is my auntie went up to my girlfriend, who I won't even mention, and was giving her the one serve. And she was saying, I'm going to give her a fake voice. This is not the way my auntie speaks. When I give my Jewish relatives a fake voice, they're always from New York, but they're <laughs> not really. And she said, oh, hello. Hello. Oh, it's a, a very lovely dress you have. And she just moved her immaculately manicured finger over to where my girlfriend's bra strap was just coming loose from her dress. She just tucked it back in over her shoulder. Which destroyed my girlfriend. It just destroyed her. At this point, the natives were getting restless. This is where the food thing comes in because people were expecting lunch. And so after half an hour, they could smell something. Something was cooking and they'd already met the girlfriend. There was nothing left to do except, you know, have a few drinks, talk business and eat. And basically people realized that this food smell was coming from the doors, you know, to the kitchen, the swing doors. And so everybody sort of congregated around the doors. And then when the canapes came out, they jumped on the canapes and they were gone in like 10 seconds. You know, it was like sharks with blood in the water. And then that was it. Those were supposed to be the canopies for everybody. And probably about 20 people got the canapes and maybe 20 or 30 people didn't. And then there was an argument because everybody wanted more food. And they started asking my parents, where's the food? We want more food. We're Jews who've come for lunch. Where's the food? <laughs> when my cousin got married, she married a non-Jewish guy, but they decided to make a kind of inoffensive meal. It was vegetarian and fish, but for the religious relatives, they got a kosher food. And the kosher canapes were already like out on the bar when we arrived for the reception. And people didn't realize that those were set aside for like this handful of us. And they were were all gone before we got to the bar and then people started whizzing around with all kinds of fancy things on trays that the rest of us couldn't eat I remember eating a cherry tomato that was left from the fish goujons <laughs> and like making the tomato last like eating it like an apple <laughs> I thought that would con me into like feeling fuller it didn't no, no also one of my nephews is exceptional about locating which of the swing doors canapes are going to come out of he just knows like people who could do water divining and he's gold it's a good skill and that sounds like it could lead to a massive broigus. Jews do often find themselves falling out over food. I know that's why we always talk about whether we pronounce it bagel or bagel. But we want to know if you've got any other family feuds you want to share with us. Kerry. Well, I've got a feud that I was involved in. It wasn't a family feud, but it was with another Jew. Does that count? It does. Yes. Definitely. So it's 1987. 
And it's about 10 o'clock at night. And I get a call from a guy who says, would you like to do the trailer for the new Stanley Kubrick film? And so that night I went out because Kubrick only works at night in post-production. And I met Stanley Kubrick. I went out there another four or five times over the next number of weeks because we did so many takes. We did a thousand takes. And we finally settled on something completely bizarre. I talked to somebody who'd done the, the trailer for the previous film. And he told me that he got a massive amount of money. So I did the trailer for Full Metal Jacket at Stanley Kubrick's mansion just outside of St. Albans. That bit was very traumatic, but kind of great because he's a genius and he was my favorite film director. And I ended up writing a radio play about it, which is still on BBC Sounds called The Kubrick Test. And Henry Goodman played Kubrick. And I played young Carrie Shale, the magic of radio. Anyway, <laughs> the Bruegges bit was what happened after that. So it went out in America and uh, my brother would call me up and imitate me. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal jacket. That was fine, but they wouldn't pay me. Finally, my agent got a hold of their people and they said that Stanley says that he and Carrie had a deal that Carrie would do it for the equity minimum. And I never made that deal because I have to earn a living. And this is when the Bruegges started. I had to sue him. I sued him through equity because he, you know, he had Warner Brothers lawyers. And finally, the Warner Brothers lawyers destroyed the equity lawyers. It was supposed to come to court, but they found some little clause that basically said, if you don't do it through your agent, Agent, we can do whatever we like. And they wouldn't call my agent. So basically, we settled out of court. And that was very depressing and awful. And I couldn't understand why they were being so terrible. And then a few years later, I was at a wedding and I was sitting with somebody and she said, I'm a show business attorney. We were talking about this and that. And I mentioned my name. She said, oh, You're that guy that Stanley hates. I said, What? He said, Yeah, you sued him. You sued Stanley Kubrick. I said, Well, yeah. And he said, Oh, he said, Get this guy, you destroy him. And then you settle out of court and he was quite disappointed. That's still not the end of the story because I do a lot of work for BBC Radio and I was on tour and I discovered the original book of Dr. Strangelove. I thought, ooh, I love Dr. Strangelove, that great Stanley Kubrick film. But I, I thought this is the original book. It's by Peter George. So I took it to the BBC. They commissioned me. I adapted it and I played Dr. Strangelove in all the various parts. And uh, the Kubrick people, because Kubrick was still alive, got in touch and came down on the BBC and said, what are you doing with my And it turns out that the book was a novelization of the movie and Kubrick had the rights to the movie. So he was furious and he was doubly furious because it was this Carrie Shale guy again. He hated me very much. And it was for the BBC World Service and it, it won a couple of awards. And then it was going to go on to Radio 4. But he said, you can't put it out on BBC 4. You must destroy the tapes. And I want a personal apology from Carrie Shale. So I let them do their thing. And I said, I'm not apologizing. I haven't done anything wrong. And uh, I gave a personal message to Stanley Kubrick via the lawyers, which I don't know if they delivered, but it, it was very succinct. I was really depressed about this for years. I read a biography of Stanley Kubrick. It was by Michael Hare, the guy who wrote the screenplay to Full Metal Jacket, who was a good friend of Stanley Kubrick's. And he said, I've never understood Stanley Kubrick's attitude to actors. He hates paying them. He's a genius. He's a wonderful guy, but he just hates paying actors. It just kills him to have to pay actors. So when I read that, I thought, Oh, because I could never understand why he was doing this to me. Anyway, then somebody called me up. They said, we want to put Dr. Strangelove out on uh, Audible. Is that okay? I said, well, it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, we got it here. It turned out somebody at the BBC kept the copies illegally. So they put it out. So it's, it's out on Audible. Uh, and, you know, he's passed away. And uh, I won. An <laughs> image of him from his deathbed, or like in the grave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, is, that is definitely the most Jewish response to any Bruegas, which is, yes. he died, I won. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that kept me up at night the way Bruguses are supposed to. That's a very good Bruges. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Rachel, do you have a Bruges? I have a very small Bruges, which is, I'm just going to bring a visual aid. I know that people at home can't see. So this is a photo of my grandmother on my ex-boyfriend's motorbike. I think she's about 85 here. So that gives you Ooh. a kind of vibe of her. She's a kind of cool, it's a very punky lady. And her and my grandfather always had this fight where she'd get into fights with people and he'd say, you don't tell people they're ugly, you just see them less. And she'd be like, no, you tell people they're ugly. So that was that kind of, that was that sort of like ongoing vibe. But then there's that Jewish joke about what's Jewish Alzheimer's, you forget everything apart from Abroigas. So my grandmother's like 97 and a member of the family who I will not name comes around for tea and then leaves. And I can see that my grandma's in the corner going like... I was like, what is it? She's like, now, I know that I am pissed off with that person, but I can't remember why. <laughs> and so then the whole family sat together and went, oh, yeah, no, we know why. So we all reminded them that basically it was a handshake at a wedding, Bruges. Literally came down to like 40 years earlier. Some people had not shaken the hand of some other people at a wedding. And that was enough for this like, long-running seam of distaste and fury and then it was forgotten except the feeling wasn't forgotten just the content i think that's how it runs in my family there's not like big explosive ones there's like minor long-running ones about the pettiest of behaviors which i'm into we're recording this over passover and when i was cleaning the house for passover i found a carrier bag and in that carrier bag were the thank you cards written by my now 27 year old child from his mitzvah, <laughs> and none of them have ever been sent oh no yes. oh please send them now i'm in sort of two minds because oh, i think please send them maybe now. it would be hilarious for them and i could just say oh you know what the post is like <laughs> You've got to. I don't think I've ever felt so guilty about anything in my life. To be honest, there's a few envelopes with addresses on where he hasn't actually written the cards yet. Have I now got to get him to write the missing yeah. ones? Yeah. I don't know what people got him. I'm going to have to say something. I can't believe you don't remember what Auntie Karen and Uncle Alex got you for your mitzvah and put it all on him. But really, this is entirely 100% my fault. Wow. I cannot think of a better gift right now when we're all so isolated yeah. than yeah. receiving a whatever 17 year old thank you gift it would cheer me right up i say do it 100 do it yeah i would definitely consider that option if any of you are listening who were at my son's mitzvah and bought him a present he was really really grateful at the time <laughs> Because the show is all about Jewishness, we want to know whether your Jewishness has had an impact or an influence on your career or any of your work. Rachel. Yes. Great. Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got some shows that are like overtly Jewish. So there's a show called The Way You Tell Them, which is about like Jewish humour and how it was kind of thinking about telling jokes from the margins when you're marginal. It was all about like gags and who can tell them and the appropriateness and that was very very jewish i had like a jewish theme to it but then i've done other shows which are not jewish and they still get received as like look at me i've got my shoulders up like this and i'm making this gesture of a shrug of course they get received as jewish but i did a show recently called arcano hearts which was based on christian liturgy it had a christian liturgical structure it's got christian singing it's about envy other than this body there ain't nothing jewish in it and it was 
still reviewed as like the super Jewish show. And I just thought, yeah, sure, can't escape this. But I, a sort of really depressing story was when maybe two years ago, 20 Jewish theatre makers through this um, grant ended up, we, we went away, we kind of had this retreat in a field and it was amazing. And now I have like a very strong community because of it. And then on the last day, they brought some like more eminent Jewish theatre people in and they, they were like, oh no, don't be overtly a Jew. Don't do like Jewish shows as like your top note. You will never escape it. It has horribly ruined my career. And so <laughs> we were, after these two days of being like, yeah we were suddenly like hit in the face <laughs> by the potential horrors of uh, being a sort of outly jewish maker in the uk i sort of feel mixed about it but i am at the moment very much of the your silence will not protect you audrey lord about it i'm not dealing with anyone else's issues the stuff i want to talk about at the moment happens to be quite jewish so i just get it and suck it up that's how i feel about it brilliant and kerry how about you so I'm an actor, so uh, sometimes I create work. I did an adaptation of a novel called The Prince of West End Avenue, set in a Jewish old folks home in New York. And I played uh, all the characters who were all Jewish. I did that at Edinburgh, and I did it at Hampstead, and I did it all over the world. So that was a very Jewish couple of years. My first film that I was in was Yentl. The first thing I did in this country was a musical, Bar Mitzvah Boy. I played Woody Allen on the radio, and all these things were on my CV. But maybe because the name Shale doesn't sound Jewish, and indeed is not because uh, not because I was ashamed of, of anything, but my original name, which was Warrior, which doesn't sound Jewish either, was very hard to pronounce and to spell. So I changed it when I went to drama school. But anyway, you know, I, I have Jewish years and non-Jewish years. My favorite Jewish year was the last uh, play that I did. Uh, do you guys know the play Good, which is about this good man who becomes uh, a Nazi? He's a university professor. It's set in pre-war Germany. Hitler's people come to him and say, oh, he really liked that paper you wrote about eugenics. Come meet some people. And he, he gradually kind of gets into becoming a Nazi. It's, it's a kind of a terrible, awful, frightening play. And of course, my character, who is his good friend, ends up you can imagine. And it's going to be done in the West End with David Tennant. And there's one Jewish character and the rest are Nazis. And I played the Jew. And it's really weird when you're walking to the stage because everyone's talking about their agent and money problems and, you know, uh, where are they going to eat after the show? But they're all dressed as Nazis. <laughs> that was an odd gig. Did it affect your behavior it, towards each other? It didn't affect my behavior towards them because they were all very nice people. But I did uh, start to have nightmares. Because I was hanging around with Nazis all day, or rather every night. The character also has a breakdown. It's a very good play. It's by a guy called C.P. Taylor, I think, who was Jewish. So anyway, that was one of the Jewish plays I did. I'm very happy to do Jewish stuff. There's some great stuff out there, and I will continue to sort of create and, and be part of it. I just remembered when I used to work for JCC, which became the JW3. The favorite gig I ever created was with Kerry when we, we did an audio read along of When Harry Met Sally. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was spectacular. The script, just, just amazing, yeah. Nora Efron. It was fantastic. Yeah, it really holds up. It's just great. Well, that's nearly all we've got time for, but how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call, you don't write? Normally, we'd allocate 20 seconds to do this, but for you, 30. Rachel, where can our audience get a hold of you? So I normally am doing live things, so that is on pause at the moment, so I'm doing a lot of writing that maybe in the future you'll be able to see. But the thing I'm doing at the moment which has given me a lot of joy. On YouTube, I've been doing a thing called Pickle Watch, uh, which is a small review show where I review gherkins. Google YouTube Pickle Watch, you'll find it. I think we've done 11 mini episodes. 
there are some true stonkers in there and there are some horror shows of a pickle. So, yes, pickle watch. Come and watch me unjar pickles. Rachel and I are real life friends and I have to say that pickling and pickles is probably the hottest topic of conversation that we've had over the last 18 months. And even today, she tagged me on a tweet from somebody else to discuss... Another Rachel, may I say. Another Another Rachel. Rachel. To discuss the impact of Passover on pickling because (laughs) there's nothing more important at this point in time and how Rachel feels about pickles. I mean, it's real and it's deep. I will immediately go to pickle wine. We might need to rename the section of the show to for you two and a half minutes <laughs> we could do two and a half hours we on just, pickles. i'll just go youtube pickle watch Kerry, where can our audience find you well i co-host a podcast called is it rolling bob talking dylan and the hashtag is at is it rolling pod and we've done uh, over 50 episodes and uh, our guests have included neil gaiman uh, david Badil, nish kumar and many other interesting people also i'm comparing a thing at jw3 called oi canada a celebration of jewish canadian artists on the first of july which is canada day uh, so that'll be live from jw3 go to the website and then i'm yeah i'm about to start working on uh, the sandman and uh, i think that'll be out by the end of the year so look for me as a creepy non-Jewish serial killer. He's probably Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Jewish backstory for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's Uh, because of his mother. Well, I've absolutely loved this. And from now on, I'll always think of Kerry as the Jew who'll outlive you just to win a Bruegus and Rachel as the Jew who'll eat anything pickled as long as it hasn't got a tongue. And as my grandmother used to say when she wanted to end my telephone calls, you must have better things to do than talk to me. And you must have better things to do than talk to us, which is a good thing. As sadly, we've come to the end of this week's show. We'd like to thank our guests, Rachel Mars and Kerry Shale. Follow them on social media. Follow us on social media at Jew Talking Without the G. Don't forget to subscribe, like and share with everyone you know. And join us next time on Jew Talking to Me. Jew Talking to Me was hosted by me, Philip Simon. And me, Rachel Krieger. It was produced by Russell Vulcan. So the next thing we're going to ask you is the Jews versus zombies bit. I have nothing to say really about Jews versus... I would pay for a goy to fight the zombies. That's... Yeah. That's, it. <laughs> that's Jewish. Yeah, I was just going to talk about Jackie Mason on Desert Island Death Valley. Like, and how would you survive Jackie Mason? He's like, I would take myself into the sea on day two. <laughs> you <do not>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I feel the same about zombies. I love that.